meant to be used by us to reorient us towards God. I have a, a son who's 12 years old, and he's like a massive people person, always was since the day he was born. So when he was young, if he was trying to tell you something really important, at least important in his book, if you were not paying attention, he would take your chin and he would move it towards his eyes. And if you still tried to look away because something important was happening, he would keep moving that chin towards his eyes because he wanted to reorient your gaze towards him or towards what he was trying to show you. The Psalms do that in a way for us. About a third of the Psalms are, are written with some confusion and questioning and, and even in the midst of ah, difficulty, grappling with why am I facing this and what, I, what should I be doing in the midst of this tough situation? How can it be, God, that you say this, but yet I find myself here? And the Psalms start to give our chin a nudge. How can we approach God in a situation like this? How can we start to pray even when this is actually what I'm feeling in my heart? When everything around me tells me I'm absolutely alone and nobody cares for my situation, how can I start to see maybe a different reality of what's happening in the economy of God? Okay, so that's what we're, why we're looking at this uh, series and backstories and I hope a bit of what we see today as we look at this backstory in First uh, Samuel chapter 22. I want to just share a few stories as we go into that, though, first and admit some really embarrassing things here, maybe. Um, I'm a comfort eater. Does anybody know what comfort eaters are? Uh, any mad mushroom or insomnia late night people in this room when there's a big test the next day or you haven't finished the work that you're supposed to do? Uh, I'm one of those guys. Uh, since the day I've been born, uh, I don't sleep very well, and when I wake up in the middle of the night to comfort myself because I'm awake and I don't want to be and I'm going to be tired and grumpy in the morning, I run to the refrigerator uh, for 43 years, and that's how you get a figure like this. Uh, and uh, I've tried everything not to be a comfort eater, and I am still in process, all right? Uh, but I find it's not just in the middle of my panic sessions in the middle of the night as I try to figure out, am I going to be able to fall back asleep, or is this my only time I'm going to be up, or am I going to be up five more times? Uh, but I want to have one of those days, you know, one of those days where you just feel like this is like a whole container of cookie type day. I find myself, uh, we've been, I've been leading a church about an hour north of here for the past 12 years and slowly transitioning out of that, and, and as we transition, we've had to talk through and grapple with and wrestle with in big ways. Uh, how are we going to continue to build? How are we going to continue to go forward? And in some of those meetings, it's been hard because you find yourself at odds with some people that you love and care for so deeply. And when you have an hour and a half drive on the way home or whatever it is in the middle of the night and you're all alone with all your thoughts and the meeting didn't go as well as you wanted and you wish you could have just had breakthrough, I find myself sprint not to bed but to that fridge. And I can tell you what, 800 calories can go down really quick in the middle of the night. They can just, and wash it down with a glass of milk and the peace that just comes, or that I think comes in the midst of that. Uh, in 2007, my wife and I um, jumped into the foster care system uh, to be foster parents. Felt led to do this, and we were excited about that journey, but knew huh, it would be hard. And uh, sure enough, first phone call we got was for these beautiful two little twins. Um, got to change my first diaper. It wasn't a bad one, so it was, a, it was a great first diaper change, even though the nurse made fun of me. And we fell in love with these two really, really quick. And it felt God speak to us and felt this love 
pour out. But it wasn't long that we got a call. And I had to go back into the system, into their birth mom. And it was one of those moments that we knew was possible. And we knew the situation. We knew it wasn't a great situation that they were going back into. And we knew that adoption was still maybe possible even or getting them again. It was just one of those, ah, oh, helpless situations. And the things that people say at those moments, you ever had those? just some of the worst things sometimes. (laughs) Just compounds the fact that you feel helpless and alone. Well, now maybe you can just do what would be best and have your own. That's why I could never do that. I knew it was going to be tough for you. And it's moments like that you have a choice of what you run to that time for me, it wasn't the fridge, but it was my work, hoping that pouring myself into building some things started to bring a bit of purpose, a sense of recovering something that was lost in the midst of that. What we see here in the psalm is David in the midst of one of these moments of despair, difficulty, on the run. You remember this guy named Saul, the first king of Israel who tried to kill David? And so he's on the run. He's by himself, all right? Nobody around. And in First Samuel 21, we see that he ends up at a place called Nob, a great name for a city, Nob. And he's there, and Elimelech, the priest, he, he even can't figure out, David, why are you here by yourself? He actually says that he trembled. Why would David be here by himself? And uh, he says he has to actually fib. And this so stretch, he lies. He says, I'm here on a special mission that nobody can know about. And, and he actually, he's, it's obvious he's in despair. He has no food. He has to eat the bread that was consecrated for the priests. He has nothing to defend himself. So Elimelech gives him the, the sword that Goliath had used. And he's out the door to, to the next place. And in the next place, the king kind of realizes who this is. This is the one that they sing songs about that's killed tens of thousands of the enemy. And he's meant to be king. Ah, he's here in our midst. And David realizes, I shouldn't be here in your midst. And he has to start to act like a crazy man and have drool coming down his beard, you know. And, and, um, and so finally the king lets him go because he's mad. And we get to this point where he's on the run. He has nobody. And this is where we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 22. It says this, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those were in distre- who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. And uh, if you want to turn to Psalm 142. So this is the context. This is the backstory to Psalm 142, which we are going to look at today. You can imagine the feelings that David would have of alone, defenseless, no one concerned about him, all of a sudden having responsibility for this whole band of people who are in the same boat as him, who have nobody, who are discontent, who are at the mercy of others, 
right? On the run even. His own family, who probably was there not just because they loved him, but maybe they did as well, but if we're going to kill the next king in line, probably the family was a target as well. And he's responsible for all of this. And this is the context for which he writes these words. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. Before him I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who know my way. In the path where I walk, men have hidden a snare for me. Look to my right and see. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, O Lord. I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather around me because of your goodness to me. Amazing words, aren't they? Um, I want to just look at a few things. We're just going to go back over this a little bit today. Uh, But I want to do this with us and see how this psalm actually does this. In the midst of moments where we're in despair, how do we start to look at God? How do we start to pray? How do we start to see not just what's around us, but a different reality? A reality that actually kind of trumps this reality that we're experiencing around us. Not that it negates it, but it actually allows us a place to run and a way to respond in the midst of very difficult things, all right? And the first, of, the first thing I want to look at is, is this, that this psalm starts to provide a way, and the way David prayed starts to provide a reorientation, all right, uh, to the fact that actually when we are alone, we are actually not alone. That actually we're not completely alone. Now I know we know this, all right, um, but let me just... Go back here to the very beginning of the Psalm 142. It says this. He starts this. Before he even starts to pray, he says, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. And, and if in your Bibles, it probably should say Lord in, in capital letters there. And that's the personal name, right, that God had. I know you guys probably all know this here because you've probably been taught this. But that's the personal name Yahweh, right, that God had revealed to his people when he came and rescued them out of Egypt, Right? And so David says, I cry to the Lord. I cry to Yahweh, the one who gave us this name, right? I cry out to him who came when we were in slavery, and he came to us and rescued us. Do you remember that story of what happened when they were in slavery, right? Moses is out in the desert taking care of sheep because he had to flee as well, because he had killed somebody, a slave master, and he had to run off. And God comes to him and says, hey, Moses, I'm sending you to Egypt to set my people free. I've seen their misery. I've heard their cries, and I've concerned myself with what's happening to them. And he says, well, if I go, what am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to tell them is even sending me? Tell them that I, Yahweh, right, I am and sending you. And so it was the name that God revealed as he came to his people who were in misery, who were in slavery, who could do nothing to get out of the situation of their own accord, 
And David says, before he even prays, guess what I do? I cry aloud to the God who's shown himself concerned about my situation. When I look around me and I'm alone, when I am in despair, when I'm on the run, when I'm defenseless, I cry aloud to the God who has proven that he's concerned with his people's situation and his people's plight and where they find themselves at this moment. He starts by saying, I start there. I lift my voice. I say it because my heart cries out that no one cares for me. No one's concerned. As I look around, I'm by myself. I have to steal the bread of the priests. I don't have any way to have someone defend me, so I have to grab the sword myself. I'm defenseless. But I cry out to the one who has shown himself to be concerned with where his people are and what's happening to them. It almost reminds me of the story of Bartimaeus. Remember Bartimaeus? Jesus is walking around in Jericho, and he's walking down the road, and a blind man named Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is in the vicinity. He had seen himself nothing of what Jesus had done, obviously, because he's blind, right? But he had heard that Jesus was concerned about people who were in difficult situations and that he had healed them. So in that situation, what does he do? He cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everybody around him says, hey, good job, right? No. What do they do? Quiet. They rebuke him for crying out. They tell him to hush. And he says that all the more, Jesus, son of David, you've shown yourself to be concerned. I've heard about it. I haven't seen it even with my own eyes, but I've heard that you've been concerned with people who are in situations somewhat like me. And so I cry out to you. Do you know that when we're in the midst of moments where we actually are all alone, maybe some of our greatest friends or people who have walked with us through other things are giving us some horrible advice or not being very sensitive in one bit to the situation that we're in, that that's not the truth of the reality at that moment. It may be the truth of the reality when we look around us, but there is someone who's shown himself to be concerned. There's one who said that I care about the situation that you're in. And David orients himself and orients the reader of this psalm to actually look again to him who has shown himself to be concerned. I cry aloud to the one who has proven himself and shown himself to not only hear and see my situation, but act on the people on my behalf and others around me. Um, John 14 is some of my favorite verses. Uh, Do not let your hearts be troubled, Jesus says to his disciples as he's getting ready to leave them. As he's getting ready to go to the cross and be put in the tomb, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled because I'm going to ask the Father and he will give you another counselor, right? Who will be with you forever. Say forever. Thank you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Now, I'm not saying that we just quote those Bible verses and all of a sudden I feel like our situation is better, but there is a truth 
that transcends the moment that I'm standing in front of the fridge and feel all alone. And I'm looking for something to comfort me in the midst of my despair. Are you with me? There's another truth that supersedes the reality that I feel hemmed in and have no options for the little ones that I've fallen in love with. Can do nothing about this situation. I have nowhere to go that's going to make any difference. There's another truth that transcends that, that actually praying the Psalms like this to the one who has shown himself concerned with me starts to raise our gaze, doesn't it? Um, one night when I actually had uh, come home from one of those particularly not-so-fun meetings and found myself sitting in front of the fridge getting, enjoying a wonderful cookie and glass of milk, as I'm standing there, totally oblivious to anything else other than the taste of my wonderful cookie, I felt God whisper to my heart, I love you, Shane. It's the first time I've ever cried eating a cookie. <laughs> I love you, Shane. I love you, Shane. I hadn't even recognized his presence among me until he whispered and it broke through in the midst of my crunching of cookies. Psalm 142 teaches us that in the midst of those feelings, there's a way to start to pray that helps us to recognize that God is with us. We are not alone, even though we might be alone in the situation. Are you with me at all? You, on a weekly basis, this community celebrates communion. Communion reminds us that God has not only seen our situation, are you with me? but he's concerned about our situation and he's acted on our behalf. I was thinking about this last night as I was preparing for my sermon a little bit. I think I'm going to set a loaf of bread and a cup of juice in my fridge so that when I go in the middle of the night for my comfort food, I actually stop and remember for a second. Or when I come home from my meeting and it hasn't gone so well, I open that up and remember, before you search for comfort in food, before you run to your work, Shane, in order to help whatever's stirring in your heart feel better, remember that I'm concerned about you. Take a moment and just listen for a second because I probably have something I want to share with you. Are you with me? That's what this psalm starts to reorient. And I think David was even reorienting and telling himself this as he prayed aloud, I'm alone. No one's concerned for me. So I cry out. I raise my voice to you, Yahweh who's proven yourself to be concerned about my situation. So if you're, you're a late-night comfort eater, put the communion cup right next to the lab mushroom number, okay? Or the insomnia number. Because he's there. He's with us. And our default position in those times that we run to whatever it may be, or we curl up in the corner because we feel so alone and don't feel we can go out. That's not the whole reality. Because he is there. And he's shown himself to be concerned and he continues to be concerned about our situation and wants to speak to us in the midst of those times. All right, let me just move on. Well, let me tell you this one more quick story. We had this young girl 
uh, that we've known for the last 11 years. I worked with her in after-school programs a long time. And uh, she came from one of the worst home situations we've ever seen. Her, uh, her dad and mom got a divorce, which was as nasty as it could be. And in this process of, of having this hard heart towards her parents for the mess that they're putting her through, her mom t- became an addict of drugs and alcohol, and her dad uh, got terminal cancer and passed away in the midst of this. And it caused the deterioration of all their lives to a greater and greater degree. Even the house that they lived in was so infested and so horrible, such horrible shape that it was condemned. And this was what she was living in, trying to raise her younger brother. And it caused her, in the midst of her anxiety and her despair, to run to an abusive young man. And my wife and I have walked with her for seven years. In the midst of running to a relationship, because of the fear of being alone, because of the despair of being rejected, because of the hurt of what she's had happen to her because of her parents' situation. Seven years in this really abusive situation. My wife and I, honestly, in some ways, are with our great faith had resigned the fact that we're probably not going to be able to even convince her otherwise in this situation. But one day in the midst of going in and out of the hospital, in the midst of this relationship, God spoke to her. And she realized in that moment that she wasn't alone. And it started this little process of actually her realizing the presence of God with her in the midst of this abusive situation, which finally gave her the ability to take steps of old steps of faith and leave that and step away from this very hurtful relationship. When I talk with her today, still today, as she's in this process of reorienting her life around Jesus because she realized, actually, he is with me in the midst of this. He's been with me this whole time. And I'm still hurt by all this. I still have trouble relating to everybody else, including you, Shane and Aaron. Uh, She's learning to reorient herself. I've actually given her Psalm 142, and we've talked about the reality of what she feels and experiences and what she has experienced and people not understanding her, including us, because of the amount of hurt and difficulty on her journey, but that she has one that she can reorient and look to, one that has proven to her and shown to her that he's concerned with her situation. A couple weeks ago, I got to baptize her. She's still in process. She goes, I'm not sure I like everybody else here. (laughs) She's afraid of rejection, but she's learning to continue to give herself. And she said, I want to continue to give myself because he has been there for me and rescued me. It was one of the best baptisms It's a process, continuing to reorient herself to the God who's been concerned about her. I love this psalm, a great resting place for us. The next thing I just want to talk about, and I'll speed these up really quick, all right, uh, is this, that uh, in the midst of these moments of despair and being on the run and feeling hemmed in, 
that we can wait on his deliverance. We don't have to make it happen ourselves. If you are in uh, 142, look at verse 3 with me again. We're just going to read a few of these. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who know my way. In the path where I walk, men have hidden a snare for me. Look to my right and see. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion. In the land of the living, listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me for those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Uh, I don't know about you, but in situations where you feel helpless, defenseless, on the run, when you feel alone, it's can often be tempting to make things happen on your own. It can be tempting to try to prove or defend yourself or try to fill the hole of what you're feeling when you're all alone by yourself. The most wonderful example, I think, of one depending on him instead of trying to make things happen himself was Jesus himself. In the garden, he says what? My soul is in such turmoil, right? To the point of... What difficulty and despair, yet he did not take things into his own hand. Yet he waited on the deliverance of God. He let God be his refuge. He let God be his portion. That terminology there, that phrase about you are my portion, goes back to when uh, they were dividing up the land between the Israelites, right? And everybody's getting their inheritance. Judah, you have this area. Gad, you have this area. Dan, you have this area. The Levites didn't get a portion of land. Why? Because God was their portion. God was their provider. God was their inheritance. Are you with me? He was the one. David says, you are my portion. You are my refuge. I resist trying to do it myself. To put it in terms of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, I realize my own spiritual bankruptness. I depend on you, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. I realize I cannot do it on my own, but I need to throw myself at your feet and wait on you to do what you're going to do. I don't mean that in a passive way, all right? But I mean it in an active way of letting God be our refuge, going to him instead of taking it into our own hand to resolve the situation, letting him be our portion. My wife and I led uh, youth for years um, early on after we graduated from college. And um, early on, we had um, a group of other people helping us. And one of the gals ended up becoming in, into a very unhealthy place where she was really finding her value and her identity and how people perceived her and how they related to her. And it was just not healthy. She had very few healthy relationships in her life, especially with guys. And that started to spill over into her helping with the youth with us. And it was at this stage where we realized we have to do something about this. We can't let this go on. And typically, in a moment like this, when you realize something, default position for Shane when you feel this horrible thing. I've failed. I've made some mistakes. I've allowed this to happen. We can't just let this go on. Our backs to the... corner, you know, the wall here. We got we to gotta make something work. 
our default position is to run around and to make things happen and to try to convince and try to sway. My wife and I really felt God say, rely on me in this. And it caused us to actually take refuge in him and to, to spend a time of prayer and fasting and asking him and saying, God, we actually trust you in this situation. You're the one that actually can change hearts. You're the one that can enlighten. And we want to let you go before us. We don't want to do this in our own strength. When we do sit down, we want to have your words. We want to do it in your timing. We don't want to rush this thing. We finally felt like we had spent enough time doing some of that. We went to meet with her, and it was the most beautiful, wonderful meeting I've ever had. We sat down, and she goes, I don't know what you're here to talk to me about, but can I just tell you some things that God's been showing me? I feel like I'm very healthy in all my relationships, especially with guys, and dunk, 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 and I think, I want to get it right. He's speaking to me, and he wouldn't be speaking to me if he didn't want me to help me in the midst of this circumstance. So I think the best thing for me to do right now is to step back a little bit and to walk with God in the midst of this. Can you maybe even walk with me in the midst of this as we try to bring some health into where I'm at? By the way, what did you guys have to share with me? (laughs) It was wonderful. Because God had gone before and had done it. I was sitting with a young man who was in a situation under a leader who was not very healthy. And it was the opposite of how he would do it. But he felt the call of God to be in this position doing this uh, work. And he's sitting there venting to me and starting to say, maybe I should just run and go do this instead and come back one day. Or, you know what, I just don't care because this guy's obviously not listening to God and he's destroying things. And so maybe I just run. And me and another grandfatherly type figure were sitting with him. And this grandfatherly type figure said, you know, you could do that. Or you could wait. You could wait and not leave one second before God releases you. You could wait and ask God and see what he wants you to do in order that might bring revelation to this man that's leading you. You could wait and see how you might be able to help others who are in this situation under this leadership that's being destructive and see how God might allow you to be, bring life and minister life. Can I encourage you, he said, not to run, not to go unless God releases you. Do what God's after. It takes a different level of trust to respond that way, doesn't it? To wait on God's deliverance, to let him be our refuge in those ways. But if those aren't, aren't words, and we can find ourselves saying, God, no one's concerned about me, but I do know you are. So I wait. My heart cries out right now, this is really hard, but I wait on your deliverance. I was thinking of this in context of the communion that we're going to be taking here shortly. It had to be quite tempting for Jesus to take his own deliverance into his hands. As people walked by the cross and hurled insults, if you are, then bring yourself down. Show yourself. Save yourself. You said you could tear the temple down and raise it in three days. Ha, ha, ha. To at least give him a little bit of seeing the truth of who he was had to be quite tempting. But he allowed the Father's deliverance. He allowed the Father to raise him up three days later and bring his life in the midst of that situation, didn't he? May you and I resist the temptation to come down and take it into our own hands. May we resist the temptation 
to not wait on God's deliverance in the way he wants to bring life and in his timing. As painful as that may be, as painful as the moment might be in that we're in right now, to allow him to be our portion and our refuge. And the last thing I want to just share with us in the midst of this is this. We get to let this reorient us, all right? To become like him. Look at uh, the confidence that David has in verse 7. Set me free from my prison that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather around me because of your goodness. He doesn't say, I hope it'll happen one day. I'm really praying that possibly something might good might come out of this situation. But he says, then the righteous will gather around me because of your goodness to me. Let me just read you a couple of these psalms about what God is like. Do you know that God is the protector of those who are alone? The alien, the fatherless, the widow. Psalms 10 says this, But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Psalm 10 also says, Defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. Psalm 68, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. Psalm 146, the Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. I don't know how David kind of thought that would look, that the Lord would gather the righteous around him. If it would look like bringing 400 others who were in debt, who were destitute, who were discontent with their situation, who were on the run because there were your family, David, and we can't stay where we are because it's not safe. I don't know if David thought that would be the answer to his prayer, but he had a choice in there, didn't he? He could have said, ah, sorry, until my own situation gets taken care of, I'm not really ready to lead. I'm not really able at this point in time to defend you because I don't have anybody defending me yet. I'm still on the run myself, so you should probably run somewhere else. Are you with me? David had a choice right at that moment. Will I become like him? Will I become a protector of the fatherless, protector of those in despair, protector of those who are on the run, protector of those who are hemmed in with their back to the wall? Will I join God in his mission of taking care of those who are in situations like that. I think in the midst of our despair, in the midst of our problems, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I wait for those things to go away, and then one day, hopefully, I'll be able to do some other things. But in the midst of what we see here is a reorientation that God is gathering the righteous around us because of his goodness, and it often looks like we didn't expect It looks like others who have nobody else. And we determine that we're going to be like God in the midst of that situation. Um, One of the ways when we moved to a community, we moved to a community in 2007. um, 
to actually spend time with people who would not be likely to go to church. We had lived in a community for quite some time, for seven years, had lots of friends, served with them, worked with them. It was a real joy, and we felt God lead us to this other community by ourselves, no community, two new kiddos, so a very big change of life, lots of work, trying to do this, and the way God brought his community around us, the way he encouraged our hearts was actually through us determining in our hearts that we weren't going to wait for awesome people who had it all together to come to us, but we're going to actually try to be like God has been to others around us. I got a, one of those people was a, was a guy who owned a building in town. We ended up buying it from him. He used to own several bars. He was an alcoholic. Um, saw the damage that was being done through what he had been doing with the alcoholism in our community. Uh, he encountered God. God spoke to him in the midst of his life, and he determined he could no longer do that and had to give himself to investing in the community. So he tried to run a little store. It failed, fell on its face, um, and it went bankrupt. And so he sold me the building in order to do some things in an after-school program and be, tried to become a sheriff, or actually a local police officer, and became the town marshal in our town from owning the bars, creating chaos in the town, to our town marshal. And after I, we built this little building, this community center where we would help kids after school, he heard what we were doing, saw what we were doing, was part of what we were doing, and started to send young men and women who had gotten in trouble with the law to be part of what we were doing. Part of their community service was to come to the events we were doing, be mentored by us, be part of serving in the community with us. He became one of our greatest encouragements in the community. He would stop by on a regular basis, babysit our kids, him and his wife would. Um, one of the other parts of our community um, ended up becoming the mom of this young girl I told you just about a little bit ago, who had lost her husband, went through this horrible divorce, ran to alcohol and drugs, became an addict. And in the midst of that, um, she became open to the good news. She became open to the message that God was with her and gave her heart and her life to Christ. She ended up living in our back room and uh, for quite some time and was like a grandma to my kids in one sense. I got to baptize actually my children and this gal on the same day, this bartender. And one of the other members of the community, I'm telling you, this is all going somewhere, these three people, was, uh, was a school teacher, a local school teacher who also had a drinking problem. Uh, he reached out to me on a day uh, after he had just got out of jail because he had been arrested for a DUI with his infant child in the car seat in the back, getting ready to lose his job, his child, his marriage. Because of the financial position he was in, he's going to lose everything else. And he comes and says, I have nothing. I have nowhere to go. And in the midst of that, started to hear God speak into his heart. One morning, I had one of the most wonderful encounters. As him and I are getting ready to go out the back door and go on a bike ride as he's learning to hear the voice of God and pray for the first time, the cop car comes down the street of our town marshal who he'd bought the building from who had actually arrested this man. And while he's over there talking to us, out the back door steps our other housemate, his old bartender, 
who used to serve him way too much alcohol, who had given her life to Christ. And these three followers of Christ, these three people who became very special in our life, these three became not just special to us, but actually special to one another. And I sat there in one of the most wonderfully weird, strange moments, tears streaming down my face. As the young man who had gotten a DUI is talking about the life of Christ with the man who arrested him and his old bartender. And I thought, it's amazing how God brings us into family, isn't it? It's amazing how he answers our prayers to being all alone and in despair. We had lots of moments of feeling alone when we moved to a new community with kids and no friends on our own. And it's amazing how God answered those prayers. But it was by us being willing to become like him. It was by us saying yes to I will help other people in those type of situations, the same situation we're in, in the midst of it. I will allow them to see you in the midst of it, Lord God, and not wait for you to answer my prayer before I will actually help be the answer to prayer for someone else. Psalm 142, wonderful little nudges, aren't they? Wonderful little reorientations for us in the midst of moments where we might feel all alone, hemmed in, on the run in despair. But I would like us, if we could, to just evaluate what our own life typically is like in the midst of feeling on the run, feeling in despair, feeling like I have no one or no one is concerned for the area I'm in. Do you know that you can be surrounded by people and feel awfully alone? Do you know that you can be surrounded by people who are supposed to be able to give you help and feel like you're helpless in that situation? There's nobody there that can help you walk through the situation you're in. Can I encourage us to let God nudge our chin up? Can I encourage him to let us reorient our gaze? Can I encourage us, like we did this morning, to just come and sit with him to allow his presence to change the situations we're in? Because we really aren't alone. Even in the midst of our aloneness, there's a bigger reality that says, I'm not alone. One who has shown concern for his people and concern for me. His communion is a reminder that he has concerned himself with us in our situation. Oh, to grace, how great a day.